0: Welcome to Literacy Mike, where we have conversations about learning. I'm your host for today, Karen Riggins. Literacy Mike is a podcast produced by Washtenaw Literacy. Believing that literacy is the foundation for a sustainable community, Washtenaw Literacy provides literacy support free of charge to adults through a network of trained tutors. In today's episode, program coordinator David Christensen talks with Megan Jenkins, a former Washtenaw Literacy staff member. Megan started her time with the organization as an AmeriCorps VISTA, and after her year of service came on staff as a program coordinator. In David's conversation with her, Megan reflects on her time with the agency, the capacity of the organization growing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and her experience with the
1: Jail program. So can you tell me how long were you involved with Washtenaw Literacy?
2: Sure. I was involved um, for about seven and a half years. I started in late two thousand and two as an Americorps Vista, and then it was only supposed to be a year. But then at the end of my Vista year, a program coordinator job had opened up, and I applied, or I was offered the job and um, accepted, and so ended up staying an extra seven and a half years.
1: Okay, great, thank you. Allison Austin, our program manager, told me that you moved from Ohio to Michigan for your VISTA position. That's a big change and hard for people to do. Can you tell me what was it about Michigan and the organization that inspired your move?
2: I feel very lucky and fortunate in the way it happened to me because I feel like it ended up being accidentally seamless. (laughs) Because when basically what was happening is I was graduating college with an English degree and I was like thinking about but not committing to law school and not wanting to invest money if I wasn't sure. But I really just didn't have a clear direction or career that I wanted to do. But I had a really good rapport with my academic advisor. I went to Ohio State. And so I was talking to him about it and saying that I wish I just had more time. And he said, well, have you ever heard of AmeriCorps? And I had sort of like lightly heard of AmeriCorps, but he said, you should look into it and think about it. And so I did like a deep dive of research at that time and was really fascinated by the idea of like one year. Like that seemed like the extra time that I needed. And I was super excited about the possibility of positions. So in my mind, it was only ever going to be a year. So I intentionally only looked out of state. I applied to... can't remember the exact number, but it was five or six literacy councils, whether it be children or adults, in probably four states. Um, And none of them were in Ohio, because I thought, oh, I'll do this for a year, make up my mind of what I'm doing, and then I'll go back to Ohio. And so- when I moved up here, it was like, it was hard, because it's hard to be like alone in a new place. But I was sort of like, well, I'll just make the best of it. And then in a year, I'll be back with friends, family, etc. But then at the end of the year, I had like made friends and had sort of settled in. And I really ended up loving the position. So when it was offered, I was like, yeah, no, I think this is what I was looking for. And then that sort of permanent move to Michigan wasn't Difficult because I already had made friendships and connections. So I feel really lucky about that. So the draw to Michigan, I wouldn't say that I was pulled towards the state when I started, but I just really ended up enjoying the work we were doing at Washington Literacy and I really made a lot of good friendships. So it made it really easy to want to continue to stay. And now I've sort of settled into the area 20 years later.
1: So you were only looking for VISTA positions at literacy councils? And I wanted to follow up with you about that, whether that's just an an English major thing, or if there was some inspiration for that direction. And then, you know, you said you stayed on because you really loved the work that you were doing. And I wanted to know what comes to mind when you think about, you know, that work that you love doing. What is it like the first thing that you think of?
2: To answer your first question. I don't know if it's an English major thing to be passionate about literacy, but I certainly know a lot of English majors who are passionate about literacy. But for me, I had done some work tutoring kids in college, and I had worked in the OSU uh, writing lab as well. And in the writing lab, the people who were referred to like remedial writing classes in college um, were required to attend the lab. So I had had experiences with people who were behind in their skills. And I had sort of been like, oh, wow, I can't believe how much harder it would be to be in this position. And so then when you start to think about like literacy councils are reaching out to people who are in even more extreme versions of that, it became sort of motivating to want to help people improve those skills. So I think that I just slowly evolved to becoming super passionate about the idea of that everyone should have those opportunities. So when I was hired, um, or not hired, when I was a VISTA, but then also when I was on to be hired it was a very different size agency when i was a vista there were three full-time and one part-time staff and there were two well one there were two vistas but one of them the girl that was there before me her vista year ended like four months into mine so it was a much like smaller organization at that time i think when i was there the first year we served really proudly served like four hundred or 500 people. But what was really like awesome about it at that time was we were, it was also just a time of like a tremendous growth because VISTAs, as you and I both know, they're great, but it is like a year. It's harder to sort of always be starting over with training someone. So when you put like a full-time staff person in place, your capacity sort of opens up naturally, even because the best VISTAs don't going to be gone at the end of 12 months for the most part. So When we had the opportunity to add more staff, we just all of a sudden started exploding with capacity. So like the the first year I was there as a VISTA, we served like 500 people. I like two years later, so I had been in the position like two years, we were serving like almost a thousand. And that a lot of that was about staff capacity, like not having to constantly be training people, which that's, that might be the only downside to a VISTA. Cause like, I know like the executive director at the time, then Chris Roberts, she loved the VISTA program, but That is the challenge, is, like, capacity. So when we had that capacity in place, it was just programs were exploding. It just felt like all the time we were having this opportunity to, like, creatively think about new programming and a lot of autonomy and figuring out how to make it work. And we were really reaching out to volunteers to sort of help start those programs. At that time, Allison Austin was a volunteer. And she and I, like, really connected when she was a volunteer. She was, like, a huge help for me in that growth period with, like, conversation, ESL. We called them ESL conversation groups at that time. But, like, Allison sort of spearheaded that as a volunteer. Like, we wouldn't have had that growth without her. So um yeah, it was just a time it just felt like a time where we were really like on the cusp of like big changes all the time. And I really like that kind of environment. Like I really like having multiple goals and lots of like brainstorming and challenges and ideas. So it was just a really good fit for me at that time.
1: Something else I wanted to talk to you about is diversity, equity and inclusion diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as you know from you know being in the nonprofit sector, is like a big deal right now in the nonprofit sector. And so I wanted to talk to you about, this is some more intel I got from Allison, but I know that when you were on staff, there was also a learner that was on staff or a former learner that was on staff. You know, this is an inclusive decision, right? Having a learner as a staff member. And so I wanted to just sort of ask you about your memories Um, around the experience of having a learner on staff. And then also if you have any thoughts about how, you know, DEI was discussed or viewed at that time as compared to now. So another, another two-part question for you.
2: Sure. So full disclosure, before I answer this as like a coworker, I am still very good friends of mine, like went to their, his son's wedding. So, um, like, my memory, like, went to his son's wedding, like, two years ago. <laughs> so, like, my memories are uh, very, like, happy and, like, all of that. But it is, it was, as far as working with someone um, from that background, I cannot say enough good things about it. And I also, um, there were challenges, but the challenges were about what you'd expect if you, I guess, if you think about it, is that someone who's coming from a background where... Like, they learned their literacy skills, like, later in life. The challenges were things like, he was really bad at sending emails, and because I was my age and coming from college, I could be sitting next to him and I would communicate, I would send him an email. (laughs) And so we would often laugh about the idea that, like, I would send him an email and he would turn around and answer the email like talking to me. So I don't know that I would consider any of those like bad challenges, but it was something where it was like, clearly we were coming from two different like learning styles. And I think that we were both better for having had that But also, um, the skills that he brought to the table were, like, unique to everybody else on staff. Um, He was, like, a great public speaker. And, I mean, there's certainly something just inherently, I think there's something about a person's uh, personality that's kind of predestined to some way of whether they're going to be super comfortable talking to a group or not. So I don't think that necessarily was about his literacy skills, but his low literacy skills is definitely... According to him, one of the things that made him like a talker because he wasn't obviously going to communicate or get to know people through like writing or talking about books or things like that. So he was just like a real comfortable person to talk to, and that was really helpful for me, especially at that time. I was in my mid twenties to like emulate. Like I really learned a lot to with him about like talking to learners and being comfortable with learners and like recognizing that finding common ground can be easy. Like just, like no one is an alien or anything like that. Like that was a huge impact in my training, I think. Um, but the thing that I think about now, too, what it really made me realize is that when you're talking about serving a certain group it's kind of essential to have those people be at the table like you have to meet people where they're at and i think it's important to recognize that their input is always as important but often more important than what you think you know about the situation because like they're living it so i don't think it would have been as easy for me to understand that if i didn't have like the close working relationship with that learner I think, I I hope I would have still gotten there just by the population we were serving, but I'm not sure. As far as the um, DEI, the difference, I mean, the difference is fascinating over, to- over time just from then. I mean, like back then we, of course, talked about it, but it was not the same type of conversations that happen today, you know, like with me too and black lives matter. It's like that's kind of what I love about nonprofits is like obviously nothing has been nothing is completely solved, but like the nonprofit sector is the thing that like kind of drives to make those conversations continue to be relevant. And just in the difference between when I was at Washington Literacy and now, it's it's huge.
0: Interested in how you can get involved with Washtenaw Literacy? Come and learn about volunteer options at an ABC's of Washtenaw Literacy Information Session. Sessions are frequently offered, so find one that best fits your schedule at washlit.link W-A-S-H-L-I-T forward slash ABC's. That's W A S H L I dot ink forward slash A-B-C-S. Thank you for listening to Literacy, Mike. Coming up next, David and Megan talk about Megan's experience tutoring in the Washtenaw Literacy's Jail Program, as well as her proudest achievements with the agency.
1: I also wanted to talk to you about your experience with Washington Literacy's Jail Program. Were you involved in that as well?
2: I was actually, so before we got funding for that, it was just me and another staff member who went to the jail weekly and we tutored like a much smaller number of inmates just because we didn't have the resources to put towards it when it wasn't a funded program. That was like an eye-opening experience for me. I liked tutoring in the jail. It also probably to this day has informed my feelings about like the justice system. For sure it really made me realize the jail probably more than anything made me really understand what privilege is like i had i had known in that like When you're a VISTA, you're intentionally paid at like poverty level because they want you to identify with the people that you're serving. And I had lived that. But I had also known when I was a VISTA that if anything happens to my car, my dad will bail me out. If I can't pay rent, I could ask my parents for a loan that would be paid back much later. (laughs) You know, like I was going to be fine. But it made me realize in the jail, like, that's not the case for a lot of people. And most of those people are either people of color or poor. Because, like, I met so many people in the jail who couldn't read and who also didn't have a job. And so they were in jail for up to a year waiting on a trial because they didn't have cash for money for bail. And, like, you didn't meet wealthy usually white people in the jail doing that. (laughs) Like it was normally like a poor person or a person of color in my case. And then I also met um, a lot of guys who were on their way to prison for like long stints, men and women. And even in those cases, what I realized is we never talked about like the crimes they were there for, but you could sort of get an indication every once in a while that it was like A big deal and a lot of times it was like drug related or seemed like it was something like born out of desperation and so it was really eye-opening to see like perfectly people who like because I didn't have any firsthand knowledge of what they'd actually done they seemed like really nice people and part of for the most part I'm not saying everyone was a treat (laughs) but but like most of the people like were just really nice people and it was kind of like oh like People make mistakes and people like drugs are terror, like drugs are devastating to to people, to families and like the decisions people make when they're desperate, like have explanations. And I'm not saying that people don't, I'm not saying that I'm like anti-jails, but like it did sort of open my eyes to sort of feel like, no, the system's kind of rigged. And like an agency like Washington Literacy is essential to sort of help those people in any way they can, because they're already so far behind the eight ball that not being able to read is just like magnifying every other problem that they've already
1: got. For sure. No, I completely um, feel you. I worked in the jail for a while as well. And it is definitely an eye-opening experience. And I do appreciate how you you meet everyone there as like a person first. Yeah. Like you said, uh, eye-opening. Because I think particularly culturally, it's very easy to, or we're encouraged to like otherize eyes and just sort of like neglect people who are part of the criminal justice system or who are incarcerated but then to meet and understand them as human beings is i think like you said the kind of first step into a new perspective i think so oh i totally yeah. like that.
2: just because like i don't know like even thinking about the people that you would meet that that would happen with it was it was eye opening to realize that like when you're sort of culturally Taught that, well, innocent until proven guilty and everyone gets a fair shake and everyone, the playing field is level in the criminal justice system. And then, like, regardless of talking about, like, racism or poverty or inherent classism or the class divide, the playing field cannot be level if the person charged can't read. Like, it's just not, (laughs) like, as opposed to, like, an educated person who can afford a lawyer and can afford bail so they can continue to work to pay for that lawyer. Like, it's just the playing field's not level. Um, And, like, you, it's hard to know that until you have that firsthand experience, because I do think you're right, like, television and pop culture possibly not now post Black Lives Matter and things, but like pre two years ago, everything was telling us that like, yeah, the justice system is fair and it, it can't be not because people aren't on the same playing field.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely think the conversation is changing over time, but it's not, I sometimes think that maybe we have a, um, because of like the fields that we're in, we sometimes have an outsize um, understanding of how it is or isn't changing. Um, yeah. yeah. Before we move on, are there any like specific stories or of working with learners that you'd like to share? If not, that's okay. My all-time
2: favorite story to tell about tutoring is actually from the jail. Okay. Like I've told this story over throughout my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with a guy in the jail um, because keep in mind when we were doing it, it was much smaller. So you would work with one or two people and that's like all we had the capacity for at the time. So we would often, the, per the coworker that I was doing that group with, we would split up based on like skill level. And so we one time had a guy come in and he, he was that situation where he couldn't afford his cash bail. And he knew, oh, I'm getting out. Like he already knew what was going to happen to him. This is where it sort of felt like, yeah, this is rigged. <laughs> he knew like, I'm going to get out in six months. I'm going to be on probation for whatever crime I committed that we didn't talk about. And part of my probation is going to be that I have to have a job. And this had was like the third time he had been in jail. Like he was not a super young man. He wasn't super old, but like that was part of how he sort of knew how this was going to go. This wouldn't even have been his first time on probation. But when we assessed him, he read very, I mean, he was a beginner, like read very low. And he was like, I got to figure out how to apply for job. Like, I got to figure out how to fill out a job application. Like I got it. I'm on a, I'm going to be on a time schedule. And so I started working with him on those and that it was just, so hard because he was reading at such a low level. He was struggling with the applications. So I was trying to figure out how to, like, keep him motivated while also working on said stuff that was just such a reach. So I brought in flashcards of the 100 most common sight words in the English language. So, you know, like and, the, but... And so we would do applications and then we would end with the flashcards. And he was, you could tell he was like a competitive guy. So I started to keep track. I said, okay, I'm going to keep score. And every week you got to try to beat yourself from the week before. And you've got five months. And so every week he would come in and he'd work on the applications and it would be a struggle, but he was getting better. And then every week, we, he started knowing like 45 or 50 of the 100 words. And we would just plow through. And he started to plateau during the last few weeks of like 87, 92. And I was stressing out because I was like, I really want him to get all 100 once. And it's so close. And my coworker was kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, he's already improved so much. Like, even if he doesn't hit 100, it's fine. <laughs> But his last day there, I mean, like, you couldn't write this movie any better. His last day there, he got a hundred. Like, and you would have thought that, like, he had just been given a job or won the lottery. Like, he stood up. He kind of did, like, a victory lap around the room. He, like, shook everybody's hands. Like, even the other inmates. (laughs) Like, he was so happy. And it was so great to see Also, I wished him well because, like, he still, like, he had improved on the applications, but I knew this was going to be a struggle. So I was super happy. That would have been enough. But so he left, and I didn't see him again because that's sort of what you expect. Because a lot of times, even the people in the jail, when they get out, they're not even staying in the county. So fast forward, like, a year. We're still in the jail. We come back to the jail, and we run into him. And I'm not thinking because he's familiar to me as an inmate. The first thing I thought of when I saw him was, "Oh God, what are you doing here?" <laughs> but then it occurred to me, "Oh, he's like he's not an inmate. Like, what's going on?" And so we were. He was like, "Hey, how are you guys?" And we were like, "How are you?" And he's one well, visiting my cousin, which that's unfortunate. But he was a visitor that day, and we were just chatting. And I was saying, "How's it going?" Blah blah blah. And then we had to go and then it occurred to me as we were walking away that he had been talking about like working and that he had been staying out of trouble and all of these things. And I sort of walked away and I thought, well, he must have got a job like (laughs) and he's staying out of trouble. And so it really did feel like, oh, yeah, I think we made like a huge amount of progress during that time. And so like he did. that. I mean, I don't take credit for that. He did that. But like there is they were super validating to the process.
1: So I think as a final question, you've given us a lot of great stories already, but I wanted to end with the question of what you are most proud of in your time with Washington Literacy.
2: It's a great question. I think that I have two different tracks that I feel about that. One is kind of more personal and maybe even more selfish, and the other is more external. So externally, I'm really proud of the work that... Like, I did there, and I'm proud of the way the agency grew and the way that I really felt like one of the lasting legacies that I left there. Because, like I said, most of – I haven't talked really very much about – I. most of the work I actually did day-to-day was with volunteer support, with tutor support. And I really felt like that made a difference. Like, I really felt like that was – because obviously you can't grow without the volunteers because you can't serve 2,000 people with six staff people unless you have a lot of volunteers. Um, And so I'm very proud of the tutor support and programs that we put into place to try to, like the mentor group and things like that, that we, that that happened when I was there and that we really committed to trying to support learners through stable, good training of volunteers. And I'm also proud of like every story I just told. I'm proud of those tutoring experiences too. Personally, or maybe, like I said, maybe even more selfishly, I learned so many invaluable things from that job that I still use. I actually, this week, now that you say this, I didn't even think about this, a coworker. worker um, I was, my position is relatively new. I was promoted to author services manager a year and a half ago, and I was training, I've been training a colleague who took my previous rollover, and this week she reached out to me and said, hey... I wanted to thank you for that tip you gave me about like moderating a meeting or a discussion because I'm realizing I use it all the time and it's great. That was a tip that I learned at Washington Literacy from like train-the-trainer trainings. (laughs) Um, The tip is more just about being comfortable with the silence and letting, not feeling like if no one's speaking, you have to speak. But like, that's an example of I use stuff from that job all the time and I credit that job for preparing me for professional growth. Like I said, I've had multiple titles at my current job and they've all been promotions. And I think that part of it is that I entered that job, this agency that I'm at now, well-prepared to work independently, but also work in a group and to understand different people are coming at things in different, different levels from different experiences Etc. Like, I really do think that working in nonprofits and then, particularly, nonprofit literacy as an employee can prepare you to just be like, I think my bosses and like lots of feedback that I've gotten posts that have been that I'm very, I roll with the punches, I don't really get freaked out about a lot of things some of that's my personality but a lot of that is yeah because that's what this job is right like if you're a high strong high anxiety person program coordination is not going to be an easy thing all the time um because it's not easy even if you can be chilled but like it's better to like be able to calm down and assess the situation and i credit washington literacy a lot with that kind of training
0: this wraps up today's episode We hope you enjoyed listening to Megan's thoughts about her time with the agency. We'll be back soon with another conversation about learning. Literacy Mike is produced by Washtenaw Literacy. Visit us anytime online at washtenawliteracy.org.